Hello again, uh, Duncan Green here with a monster roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Reason being is that I've been on holiday. I've been uh, uh, wandering around in the rain in Northern England uh, and then went up to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is one of the, uh, something I try and do every year and it's just an amazing place. If you get the chance to go, phenomenal amount of brilliant theatre, comedy, um, music, anything you want, and uh, you can see three or four shows a day and get your entire year's culture crammed into one week. It's very efficient and a great fun. But now I'm back, and uh, there's a two and a half weeks worth of posts to talk about. So uh, I will get straight into those, and I may not give them quite as much detail as I usually do, uh, just in the interests of uh, everybody's time, but I thought I'd better give you uh, a sense of what's been going up on the blog in my absence, partly things I'd worked on before I left, and then Maria Faciolince, my colleague who works on the blog, coming in and uh, filling in some of the gaps. Right. Back to the 5th of August, an age ago, and the links I liked, the standard Monday links I liked. I think the standout one this, this time was um, some great advice from Danny Roderick, one of my favourite economists, who uh, was asked to give a three-minute uh, talk with advice to economics graduates. And some of the things he, point, he's, he urged them to do was always question the truth, question conventional wisdom, shun cleverness very important advice, learn from history and always ask for a second opinion. Danny is the kind of economist we need. Absolutely, uh, very spot on, spot on advice. The following day was uh, a rather painful and personal piece. Uh, a friend of mine called Roman Beniccio, who was involved when I first arrived at Oxfam in running its big Make Trade Fair campaign. One of the focuses for the Make Trade Fair campaign was um, the global rules on patents, on intellectual property. And we argued and campaigned that the drugs companies in particular were getting ridiculous levels of profit by preventing poor countries accessing medicines at affordable prices. They were keeping the prices high, selling in the rich countries, and the, and the poor countries and poor people in those countries were not able to access medicines. Fast forward 15 years and not much has changed, but for Roman, it's become very personal. He now has a seven-year-old son, Robin, who has cystic fibrosis. And there's a promising new drug called Orcambi, uh, developed by Vertex Pharmaceuticals, um, which could really help his son, but Vertex is asking for $150,000 per year per patient. And the Swiss, uh, Roman lives in, in, in Switzerland still, um, the Swiss health system is saying we can't afford 150 k um, And the issues, he looks at the issues which we tackled in our campaigns in the, in 15 years ago, and not much has changed. Excessive profits, um, often the uh, research that goes into the drug is actually drawing on publicly funded research. So the idea that companies have to be able to recoup their investments is questionable. And once again, a possible get out uh, through getting generic drugs, which don't have the brand name, but have the same impact uh, on the sickness on the, on the, um, from this, in this case from Argentina. So Roman is kind of having a deja vu moment where he's back in Made Trade Fair, but this time for his for his own family. On Wednesday, we had a really nice piece by um, two Oxfam colleagues, Anam Parvez Butt and Gopika Bashi, who were talking about how do you design research for this new focus, which Oxfam and a number of other organizations uh, have got, which is we're trying to change social norms. It's very different changing people's attitudes and beliefs and underlying understanding of what is natural and normal and right to 
changing a government policy or getting a government to stop something or spend more on something, which has been the traditional field for a lot of our advocacy. So Anam and Gopika were looking at how do you design research for these new norm campaigns? Um, uh, and they came up with their top tips. And I must say their top tips actually sound to me like partly like top tips for any good research, but it's been really underlined by their work on uh, this particular campaign in Sri Lanka on um, sexual harassment on public transport, which we've been involved in. Uh, so the top, top tips include, you know, really mapping the system, understanding the stakeholders, um, making sure that the people who uh, you're trying to benefit in terms of norm change are actually involved in designing the research. So big emphasis on participation, on context, you know, uh, just doing research well and involve and not seeing it as this separate expert activity, um, but as some an integral part of the of the campaign. The following day was uh, a really nice piece uh, from a Zimbabwean activist called Charles Dewa, who specialises in in work on agriculture, and this is uh, he he was writing about how do we liberate, and that was his to, his word agriculture and development from academic preferences. I thought this was I love this piece because it's. Um, He's saying we give too much attention and kudos to academics and not enough to farmers. And he's, his critique of academia, I thought, sat, yeah, rang very true with me. It's characterized by what he calls stale knowledge. Um, you know, those re literature reviews which review books from 15 years ago, which in turn review books from 15 years ago, and suddenly you're looking at 30, 40 years ago. And in some cases, things have moved on. Some things not. But in many cases, in, around technology and markets and so on, things have moved on. Um, he talks about the hijacking of development agencies, both aid agencies and government ministries, by academics. You know, they've all been to LSE. You know, I'm guilty as charged on this. They've all been to LSE or these other you know, elite universities, and they therefore have massive respect for the academics um, and possibly too much. And where he gets really interesting is he's saying, well, what do we need instead? And he talks about fluidity. He talks about needing a fluid literature, which is much faster to respond to new developments, new understandings, new knowledge, um, much uh, linked with a fluid information system. And basically what he really you know, brought out for me was just how slow and constipated the academic form of knowledge creation has become relative to how the rest of the rest of the world operates. So great piece. Um, and then on the, 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 the full last one of that week was um, does strategic planning make a difference? You know, I've been really struck in Oxfam, but in other NGOs as well, how much time, energy, expense is invested in this periodic process of strategic planning where we all get together, look at how the world is changing, look at what we do, have an enormous discussion about what we should do differently, write a big document, and then um, that's supposed to set out what we do uh, over the next five years, for example. And um, I tweeted something about Oxfam's strategic plan, just sort of uh, quizzically asking, um, has anybody done any uh, research on whether strategic planning has any impact on what organizations do? And Mark Goldry, my former boss at Oxfam, spotted this and um, decided to, to rise to the challenge and was provoked by my tweet and wrote a really nice piece about when does strategic planning actually benefit an organization? When is it a monumental waste of time? And his view was that the key thing is what happens, what you put in place for after the strategic plan. If you have an enormous strategic planning process at the end of which everybody is totally exhausted, you produce a big document and shove it on a shelf, 
then yeah, no one reads it and it's a waste of time. If that strategic planning includes how you update it, how you use it, uh, how you come back to it, then it can be useful. I think he's probably right. So I'm going to be a bit less sceptical about strategic planning, which helps because next month I have to go to a three-day Oxfam strategic planning session in Nairobi. So I'm going to be open-minded for once. The next week started with a fairly um, uh, attention-grabbing headline by From Poverty to Power Standards, Get Off My Nipple. Um, African feminist fellow Jeannie Anumo um, from the Association for Women's Rights and Development, uh, AWID, had a piece on breastfeeding and corporate power. And she looks at the level of disinformation, the myths which are sort of encouraged by the companies that are part of the $70 billion a year global baby food industry. And she kind of presents breastfeeding really in quite an interesting way that it's, it's essentially decommodifying something which has become commodified. You know, instead of having to pay for baby food, you just breastfeed yourself. Um, and uh, in that sense, it's a very radical act in her view. That's, how, that's the word she uses, a radical act. So a nice piece there. The following day, I, I've been working through the backlog of books piling up on my uh, study floor, and there were two manuals for activists which I thought were worth mentioning. The first one I actually bought by accident. I, it was called Be the Change, and I thought I, um, by somebody called Gina Martin, and I thought this was Gina Miller. I got mixed up with my Ginas. I thought it was Gina Miller, and it was going to be about the case, case she brought against Brexit. Couldn't have been more different. It turns out that Gina Martin was the person who... Uh, led the campaign on upskirting, which is, is this really slightly dis bizarre and very disgusting practice of using your mobile phone to take photos up women's skirts and then putting them on you know, social media. So she, she had this happen to her at a music festival and was just really, really upset by it. She didn't have a background in activism, but she became an activist and quite an effective one. And she, lo and behold, you know, a couple, few years later, she actually got a law banning upskirting um, uh, passed in England. And this is her really practical, hands-on guide to activists. If you want to make something change, if you want to change the law, here's how you do it, here's how you do social media, here's how you do press interviews, here's how you prepare for a radio interview. Really, really good, useful stuff for activists. The second book was by Joseph Rom called How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. And I had to say, I didn't like this book as much. It was really irritating. It, it, it was bigging itself up so much, um, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, basically selling the secret sauce for going viral on whatever topic. However, there was useful bits in here, and I think you just have to hold your nose and read it. Um, the bit I found most practically useful was on the importance of testing headlines. I mean, this is all about social media, but in social media, the key decision is whether someone clicks on a link, on a headline. And that means that the way you write the headline is absolutely determinant. Um, you know, he, he was doing experiments on one of the blogs he, he worked on where a very minor change in wording would triple the number of clicks. So we really need to spend more time trying out headlines, learning what makes for a good headline, what can get that all-important click through. And I thought that was very practically useful, even if the tone of the book was a bit um, uh, off-putting. The following day, we had Vishwesh Sundar writing about do remittances reduce poverty? It's a very good sort of introduction to the topic of, yeah, this vast amount of money, four times the volume of global aid, comes back from overseas workers to developing countries. 
And uh, Vishwesh has done a good sort of introduction to what we know about that. He did a regression uh, showing that remittances do indeed reduce poverty in his sample of 25 Asian countries. He found that remittances are counter-cyclical. So when economies go down, migrants send more home to help their families. Uh, and so you've actually got a really useful uh, sort of buffer against economic downturns in the form of, 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 of remittances. Um, and so he comes up with some fairly standard uh, proposals for reducing transaction costs because despite the size of the flows, many migrants still find that they, they, they face very high costs getting the money back to their families. Um, right at the end, he just drops in this line, which I thought would be the start of another post, was that this, you know, this evidence is all about the economic impact. What's the emotional impact of migration? Is it also as uh, unequivocally good? Or is it actually very traumatic? And what do we know about the, the, the emotional impact, the well-being impact of migration? Um, and he sort of left that as a tease at the end of his piece. On Thursday, we had uh, the Overseas Development Institute's Tina Pasanen, who picked up on a term originally put out by Andrew Natsios at USAID, obsessive measurement disorder. A lovely phrase for the aid sector's increasing obsession with measuring stuff, even if it's not terribly useful. And I stuck in a graphic with that wonderful Einstein quote, which is really hard to remember, so I've written it down. Not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. It's really hard. I advise you not to try and use it when you're giving talks. But if you just think about that, he's saying, just because you count something, it doesn't mean it matters. And actually, not everything that matters can be counted. You know, try measuring love. Try, you know. Um, and yet, the aid sector is in the grip of obsessive measurement disorder, and it is doing things like collecting more and more indicators, more and more data, even though we don't actually do much differently, apart from collect lots more data, and therefore run up much bigger, bigger expenses on data collection. So Tina argues for... Um, less but more useful data, you know, really useful data, which I think uh, sounds very sensible indeed. On Friday, we had Emily Janik of Care International with another great title, How Do We Get Better at Failure? Um, and her, uh, her experience of talking about failure in Care International is that what people say is, well, yes, absolutely, you first. You know, no one wants to be the first person to offer up a failure for discussion. But Care's really tried to get to grips with this and she Emily describes two two approaches one is a podcast where you get someone to talk about their own failures in a sort of more chatty way and I think lots of people in the aid sector actually find it quite therapeutic to talk about um, screw-ups and failures and what's gone wrong and what they've learned from that crucially but the other thing they've done is a meta-analysis a kind of analysis across a bunch of project evaluations and they've said okay so what are the common elements of failure we see in this and the, 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 the post also generated some really good comments from people, um, uh, so I think it's well worth looking at. Which finally brings us to this week. We're nearly there. Don't, don't panic. So the first uh, post this week was Being a Feminist in Difficult Places. This is a series that Maria Faciolince has, be, has been developing, and she's got really interested in what's going on in the Balkans and, and um, uh, a, a particular um, uh, series of blog posts called Talking Balkan Feminism. Um, and the Balkans is interesting because is it north or south? It's got elements of both. You know, the 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 she te she um, put together excerpts from four feminists on this conversation from Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
Montenegro and Serbia. And it's a very unique area, the Balkans, as we all know from history. So as well as being sort of in between North and South, it's massively conflict affected. It's been in this rapid transition from uh, Soviet planned economy to a market economy. It's got sort of huge ethnic tensions, multi-ethnicity within countries, as we know all too horribly from Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, and so she's yeah, brought together some discussion of a really neglected area on this blog, uh, but in many other cases too, what's going on in the Balkans on, on feminism. And then finally, uh, absolute standout piece from Stanislav Bisimwa Baganda. Um, part of this really good series, I'm really enjoying this series, the Bukavu series of blogs put together by researchers linked to Ghent University in, 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 in Belgium. And this is is a local researcher merely a data collector? And this really is a massive critique of the research community, of which I am part of the LSE at least. Um, and this is and Stanislav Slas is basically saying, you know, colonialism has been repeated and recreated, and in a pretty crude way, in the research system, where what you have is people with funding coming in from northern universities, white people pretty much, coming in and looking for and employing research assistants or data collectors. And those research assistants play an absolutely critical role. They are local researchers um, who have access, who speak the language, have access to communities, have the trust of those communities. And they're essentially the, the, uh, the, the bridge on which all the research depends, on their relationship with the people that the, the northern researchers want to access, if they're refugees or migrants or whatever they are, right? People affected by conflicts, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and that is not represented in the incredibly imbalanced power uh, relationship between researcher, research lead and research assistant. So, you know, the, the, the there's not rep replicated in terms of what research assistants are paid, but it's not re it's not it's not reflected in in how risks are managed. You know, if there's a, any risk to the white person, then they're whisked out. You know, airlifted out. It's all massive sort of process of of, of care run by the Northern University, the Northern Research Organization. Local research assistants much more left to their own devices. Um, credit is not given, you might get a mention in the, you know, um, acknowledgements. But actually, if you think about it, shouldn't they be co-authors at the very least? You know, it's so much their work that is being um, produced here and that is making the research possible. So I think a really good challenge, and I'm hoping it's picked up both within the LSE and, and elsewhere, we really need to rethink this whole lead researcher, research assistant uh, relationship and try and democratize the whole thing. We then had a couple of days rest um, uh, and you'll probably need a rest after this and we'll be back next week with more stuff. Have a good day.